This is One Heat Minute. Drop of a hat, these guys will rock and roll. What's your name? Wayne Grove. Look like gangbangers working the local 7-Eleven. Robbery homicides take me. Give me all you got! Listen. Give me all you got! I do what I do best. I take scores. You do what you do best. I'm trying to stop guys like me. A podcast dedicated to all 170 minutes of Michael Mann's L.A. crime opus, Heat, one minute at a time. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to One Heat Minute. I'm your host, Blake Howard, and joining me today, look, just by complete osmosis, and I've even said it to him just as we started, the best edited, arguably, parts of this entire film. And I've got two great editors back-to-back to kind of talk about them, which is a total fluke, but I, I think like the destiny of this movie and the destiny of this podcast, we knew that it was going to happen. So, Fashion Natomansky was last week. This week, I have a television editor, writer, and producer, a great video essayist um, who I strongly recommend for like homework um, for One Hit Minute fans to watch his video essay on Dog Day Afternoon. Um, also, if you're an Altman fan, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, terrific docos, mini docs, if you like, of magic and light in the films of uh, Steven Spielberg. And he gives excellent Twitter. Um, so, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the editor um, of all of those things that I've just mentioned and a freelancing editor. And I believe and uh, uh, working on an upcoming project around the evolution of style in cinema, his name is Stephen Santos. Stephen, welcome to One Heat Minute. Thank you, Blake. This is my first podcast appearance. So this <laughs> From behind the cutting room onto a podcast. <laughs> but I love this movie, so this is worth I feel I had something to offer. Yes. <laughs> Yes, and we're finding more of them that exist in the world, as you know, guys who are listening. Look, mate, thank you so much for being a part of the show. I appreciate it internationally, as always. We're getting some great guests. So Stephen and I are going to check out this insanity of a heist minute, um, let you guys listen to the chaos. Then we're going to come back and talk about many things about it. So um, let's do that together now, and you guys can have a listen. And again, apologies in this heist minute. Of all the quiet, contemplative moments of this film that you can sort of listen hard in the cans, as soon as we cut to the chaos and carnage of this scene, I'd probably recommend slightly turning down your f- headphones right now because when it, when it cuts in, it's going to blast your ears off. So um, here we go. We're going to watch it together. You guys are going to listen along, and we're going to come back and talk about it. And in like three seconds, we watch finally the turning point, the turning point of all this momentum, this sort of unstoppable force of these three guys, cut after cut after cut. I think it's around 25, 25, nearly 30 cuts that I've just counted there as I'm, I'm watching again. It's a lot. Um, wow. <laughs> yeah, I just, I, I mean, I've been watching this sequence the whole, you know, several times over the last few days in preparation and I've watched that specific minute again and again and again i'm just like marveling just at how i mean all those shots are just so well planned and mapped out and i just i can you know and i I told you this and i'll I'll just share this that last week since i now live in the city this was shot in (laughs) part of as part of um, my plan to kind of visit all the places in the city that I saw in movies that I've never been to before. I feel this was a good time to go to downtown LA and see where this got shot. And um, it was also kind of just a good 
something to learn. You're like when you're actually in the physical space, I felt like I was kind of like where Michael Mann was <laughs> 23, four years ago when he, when they actually went and shot this and just imagine him going there in that location, that cross section of those four blocks um, and just mapping out, like looking at that location, like mapping out like where everyone is and plotting this out. And I, I, I just imagine him just like a diagram and with, with storyboards and he just has like an overhead, like, these guys are moving down this block and the cops are right there. And it's, and you can, it's so much chaos and going on in that scene. And yet you understand where everyone is in relation to each other. And you can like, they, you know, even from bullet to bullet, I think you're right there, Steve. So even from bullet to bullet of the chaos of muzzle flash to fire, to, you know, to to a fire, and then De Niro when he's not sure whether the guys can see what his next move is, and he's screaming over his le- you know his uh, left shoulder, you know, go and making those moves. You, there's such a great, uh, there's just such a great momentum with how even the the tracking that footage, be, approaching the shot perfectly to see him take the shot. The camera comes in just even a fraction a fraction for him to call go, and then to get a flash of where Chris is to see what he's doing, the people who are pursuing Chris, Chris making the run so that we know that he's protected. And and then similarly, we just do that great, you know, sort of side on cut over to Michael where he gets isolated. So he's like, you know, incrementally Chris first, Michael next, Michael hesitates, goes the opposite direction. You know, again, it's for all the chaos, you know exactly where these guys are, which is why it's scary because they just keep reinforcing that they're getting up to this blockade and they're just blasting and chewing through it with those bullets. So crazy good. Well, it's there's also you see what's you know what's special about this film is that also emphasizes it's throughout how these guys are specifically trained to get out of any situation, and you can tell like there's a strategy to the shooting here because they know that Pacino and his team behind them they they're better they got the better guns yes so they move forward and get past the line of police cars because their guns are shit and they're not going <laughs> to. <laughs> so they, they and they have this like and without even saying anything to each other they get out of the car and they just start moving forward down that street just to get past that blockade because that's the only chance that they have that's all they've got yeah occasionally still having to um, constantly turn back and get these guys off their back which actually is, i think is in the minute before this one which is the famous shot of that they use to train people to shoot with that <laughs> Yes. And one take without cutting goes in two different directions, loads up and goes right back in the original direction, <laughs> which is just, you know, wow. It's like, uh, you can tell, and it's like, this is, once again, it's like, it's a great, there's a, there's a strategy to the way they're getting out of there. And they kind of, um, they, and, and it actually pays off in a way too, because that, the way they try to get out of there is trying, they're shooting backwards on kind of having to constantly look over their back. Yes. And not to, you know, obviously people have seen the movie and that's all just spoiled us a couple of minutes ahead. <laughs> the reason, the reason Tom Sizemore, his character gets killed is because he only, at a certain point, he only starts looking in one direction. Yes. Completely just lose, you know, he completely is now ditched any kind of strategy whatsoever. And that's when, at that great moment when he turns around and finds Pacino just waiting for him, and you kind of you kind of see how this strategy does. You know, they, it works for a while, and then once it, chaos over, eventually overcomes the strategy, and they just like can't. They can't. Just, it it, it that overwhelms them. How does the space feel, Stephen? For guys like you know, I'm sitting in Sydney. I haven't been in the physical space, but I think that you know anyone that I've talked to on this um, show knows that my next trip to LA, I will 100 percent be walking these streets to sort of feel what it's like you know i have to but what does it feel like does it feel like because it feels like this epic vista almost in this movie and that's largely i think the technical brilliance of all of the camera operators and having that you know that tracking shot that just keeps moving and it feels you know there's momentum people are running jumping moving through um moving through the staggered traffic as everything is stopped but does it feel like a massive expanse when you're there or does it feel small it feels smaller 
and I would actually say to the, the one thing to note about this location is that it's in it's in downtown LA, um, which is if you look at the landscape of LA, most buildings are not tall. They're, it's like mostly I'm like in like it never goes beyond four floors for the yes. most part. Yes, downtown LA actually has these you know tall buildings. I guess they're not on a fault line for earthquakes. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and it's pretty much, I think it's the only time in the movie, the only place, the only time in the movie they actually go there to that area. And it has, unlike the rest of LA with those tall buildings, and, and this is actually the feeling you get living in New York all the time, this cavernous feel. Yes. Which, um, you know, they're kind of, and it lends to that whole sense in the shootout that they're completely trapped there it's hard to just you know there's no sense of sky yes you know and it's the only time in the movie it's i since they don't actually go there for most of the movie they you know most you see most of the landscapes for the movie you see the sky you see it's very you know yeah skies and oceans and and you know even even when they go when he goes down south to find Torino, you know you've got that great those great mounds of you know yellowing sulfur or whatever it is that's being mined and that's against the sort of harsh gray blue la sky as well yeah so got got lots of got lots of great outdoor spaces so this is pretty much the only sequence that takes place amidst all these tall buildings and also lends that great the most one of the most important aspects of the shoot is the sound design. Yes, the the guns just don't sound like when when I saw this back in 1995. Like the guns just didn't sound like anything I'd heard before. Yes, and he he went through the detail of being able to have a sound effect for the gun where it echoes in that specific space. It wouldn't echo anywhere else in Los Angeles, but in downtown Los Angeles, we have all these tall buildings it's going to have that certain echo to it when you're shooting, shooting guns like this. And yes. has, I'm glad that he went through the trouble to get that sound effect right because it makes it makes this sound different than a shootout that you saw beforehand. Well, the big it thing... It has that real, like, there. Yeah, the amazing editorial quartet, Pat, Pat Buber, may he rest in peace, of Honig, Tom Rolfe, um, and Bill Goldenberg, they, like... They got the they they had man had the nouse to record all of the live fire that they were doing with these guns on set as they were shooting. So had the the foresight to say I'm going to record it because uh, and I want them to use the dummy bullet so that the sound is amazing on set. We want that really we want that to affect the way that the performers are doing. And so normally you would throw that in the bin. Like you would just go, okay, there's the temp track. We'll take it to the editors and the sound designers, and we'll, you know, they'll use they'll use it as the baseline, but we'll we'll be able to fix it. And everything that the four the quartet of editors, from what I heard, even in the last podcast with Vashi, was that like Bill Goldenberg and and the team are like Michael. Nothing sounds like nothing that the sound designers are bringing us sounds as good as these guns being fired in this physical space. Like nothing sounds like to your point, like. Before ninety five, nothing sounded like that. Nothing was as grating in a positive sense, like like that. It, you know, you can feel it in your bone marrow than these guns firing in this space. And it's like nothing sounds like that. And so they end up making the great decision, which we all now love and adore. Reflecting on it, of like nothing sounds like this because because heat created this sound. And like other movies that have gone on and have been like the guns aren't loud enough. The guns, the guns aren't loud enough. There's not enough echo. They're not scary enough. Like it doesn't like blow the EQ out and knock your speakers, um, you know, off the walls and uh, from shaking. Like it doesn't sound like anything like this. And so they well, made that decision. Well, it's after this movie. Why would you go back to doing the canned sound effects that we're all <laughs> used to? Like, we're at, like, and once this movie did this, then. Just going back to, and we've all heard these sound effects. I mean, even if you don't work at this, you've heard the same sound effects over and over again. And, and sometimes you hear the same sound effects for, and and sometimes the things are so aware, the films are so aware that you know how terrible those old canned sound effects are that they use them on purpose. Like you know, there's the everyone knows the the, the man falling into the Sarlacc scream. 
that's been used in Pixar movies. It's been used since like the 1930s. That that same you know iconic scream um, that was probably used as like a meta reference in early Star Wars movies. But because we all watched them to death as kids and grew up with them, we're like. Oh, if I ever make a movie, I might just one day have to throw that sound effect in. Like, because everyone's just going to chuckle. I don't need the real guy screaming. I need this. And it's like, it's just one of those hilarious things that you're like, well, when Heat did this, it unless you're being self, you know, self-referential or unless you're being meta and you're trying to be authentic, shooting stuff that doesn't sound like real guns firing is so much more grating if someone's like a real, you know, an action movie aficionado and they see this movie, they're like, this doesn't sound like a gun. Um. And also, I just wanted to, since we brought them up, um, I was always curious, and since I don't actually know the story, I know that man likes to use multiple editors, but I was wondering, how did they handle the editing on this movie? Um, That's actually the one thing I've always just been curious about. (laughs) Because they were editing so fast, so they were doing it on, um, they were editing on new Sony like video, for the time new like Sony video terminals and they had teams of f- the four teams of editors basically working round the clock because they were not only shooting they were going for a December release in 95 so they were shooting in 95 shooting on 35 millimeter film and then trying their darndest to cut scene by scene so what would happen is the dailies would come through man would look at the dailies record a dictaphone on his notes and then one of the editing teams would tackle a scene and so they just tackle a scene and tackle a scene and they did it you know the wonderful podcast that i got to do with pat boober like that was one of his things he's like we didn't see the whole movie assembled for all of us to talk through all the elements and to see what we needed to trim from our own contribution to the film until um like until they had rough cuts of the movie of the whole thing <laughs> and and so what would what was happening is i think pat was the one of the first editors on there and he'd come in and they'd been shooting for 10 days so they had uh, at least a backlog of footage for them to start and then dove honey came over from batman forever i'm not sure about Tom Rolfe and Bill Goldenberg, like exactly when they came on, they might've come on with Pat and then just started. But the, the, the thought was that they were really like in their, in their offices, there was like four bays and the four main guys were there or their, them and their editorial assistants. And they were just going, Michael would just walk from one office. With, he was the, the guy with the whole movie in his head and would walk around to each of them and go, yep, you're up to this. No, that needs to change. Da, 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 da. And that would be his secondary notes. Cause the first one is the dictaphone. Like he'd like, He'd watch the dailies, have a dictaphone about what takes he liked, what things he liked, and then he'd give that to the editors and they'd work on it as they as they did and sort of start to build the rhythm of and, and getting to know him and, and, and that sort of thing. But, like, I just – I can't fathom the chaos of cutting on film, shooting in the same year that you know that the movie's got to be released or you're targeting a potential – like, that's an award slot. That's an award slot release date, right, for a, what is a big crime epic, and they're just cutting around the clock. Even as close, even as close as Pat Boober told me before the premiere, the uh, there was still things that were trimming out of the the um, the three a.m. Vincent Hanna visit to find out, um, you know, uh, Albert Torina and. Richie Torina, who played by Tone Loke, like that 3 a.m. nightclub scene, they'd, they'd assembled the cut. It's on film. They watch it in preparation for the premiere. And Michael gave Pat Boober a note going, we could trim more out of that scene. And Pat's like, yep, sure. Assuming that like a normal person would be like, oh, in a week, we'll do it all after the premiere. And what Michael meant was, no, we can cut it now for tonight and so pat boob is literally going through reels cutting (laughs) reassembling ready for a premiere like and that cut again was what was printed um so that's the that's the that's that's the chaos he changed this cut a few years ago didn't he i don't think i've seen this that version but uh no and, and that's another another great point so we are watching the 1995 theatrical cut of heat there is a definitive edition that is slightly shorter um has been you know beautifully um, remastered in 4k it's lovely it's not it's not bad but it's like 
there are some beats that are different. It's like a fingerprint with one line out of place. And, I mean, and for obsessives yeah. who've watched this movie that many times, it's like there's some things that are just beats and ADRQs and certain things that just aren't there that were there. Um, he, I mean, he just has that obsessive quote, which is why he keeps producing multiple cuts of his movies. And he just has that kind of, that obsessive take on things to just not let it go. And we all have that. He just doesn't suppress it. In any <laughs> <way>. <laughs> but, but to be fair, to be fair, Heat is the movie that he's, Heat is the movie and actually the insider. I don't think there's been a secondary insider cut, but like that, this period, Heat and the insider are his like most, you know, arguably his two greatest films. And They're my absolutely mine too. And, um, the insider seems so perfect. I wouldn't know what he would cut, like other than fastidious trimming, because it it goes to. There's just so many things happening in that movie. So many elements, and there's so many ways that that can go wrong, and it doesn't. At, at for any second, you're completely engaged in the whole film. And in this movie, even though he tinkered, I think like one or two things, and you know, recolor grading some of the stuff, and just you know, just just giving it a little bit of you know what what we can do in modern flair in terms. He he hasn't touched it. Like I know that Mohicans, he there were significant differences between the director's cut and the theatrical cut. There's apparently a black hat cut out there that exists that's different to anything that went out in the theatres. Um, you know, uh, Ali has two separate cuts, and in fact, I think the director's cut of Ali is way better than that. And and the Miami Vice has a theatrical cut that I don't think is as good. I think the theatrical cut of Miami Vice is really great. And so it's just, yeah, it's one of those weird things where there's like different versions of almost all of his films that are out there. Um Maybe Thief but is the only other his, movie that doesn't his, really have many any differences. But, I mean, yeah, in his case, it's just really – because he's going back and, like, years later and saying, you know what? I want to use another take. He's not even changing – he's not even – I think in this version he didn't – not what I heard. He changed scenes. He just went in and changed takes and just took little slivers. bits. Slivers, yeah, slivers of a of a heart, you know, five or six frames here and there in a scene to feel like he's taking, punching it up or something. And that's still, like, bothering him. Yeah, it's, like, still bothering him two decades later. That's, that's like a novelist like, changing a sentence in a bestseller <laughs> ten years later. I mean, I actually understand it because I do, I do that with words. And I'm an editor, so we're used to just, like, I do like 10 different versions of the scene and then, you know, like, like five versions for myself and then five versions for somebody who give me notes. And then that person above them has to give me notes. And it's just this endless kind of altering and altering, like, and it, it, you know, you can go as many versions as you want. And it's do you just feel little- finished though? Do you ever feel finished Steve, for yourself? Like on something like if you, cause that's the great thing and, you know, pointing people back to a previous episode and a future episode with, the amazing Pat Boober, may he rest in peace. Um, he talked about like his favorite scene in the whole movie is one that he cut together that got altered the least. And it was a later scene in the movie. And he loved it the most because he just felt like his first cut, he got what Michael was going for with the scene. And he, his assembly cut of it that said, this is what we've got. And, you know, took all Michael's notes in, of course, but like his assembly cut of the scene was exactly like it was right on point. So like my, my thing to you is like, um, do you feel finished as an editor when you're like, do you, there cuts of things where you're like, Oh, that's, I can't change that. Cause that's what I'm happy with. And then someone gives you a note or like, how, how do you, how do you approach that? It's a tough I've thing. Never, I never, I'm never satisfied with it. <laughs> and the same thing has been now that I'm more writing too, it's very much just, working things over I t- i've taken all the lessons of editing and applied them back into writing because i just want to like get it down the chute and get it out the chute as, as much as yeah. best possible way possible you know and it's it is it's just an endless reworking of in terms of editing it's like an endless thinking of like was that cut just two three frames off yeah and then that kind of bothers you and then you keep adjusting it this way that way is the music hitting right should i be a close-up there and you know it just and it's an endless question and, and, it, and it goes you know i've been doing that with writing it's like i you write certain lines of dialogue and you kind of you constantly keep adjusting the words 
because I'm always constantly thinking and editing and writing in terms of rhythm. Yes. Sometimes it's always a constant search for the right rhythm to things. And, you know, that's kind of, I mean, I assume that's also, in some ways, that's Michael Mann can work with different, you know, sometimes he uses his editors twice, but he's, he's worked with generally different editors over time. And, you know, his notes are basically just, I assume, just an endless search for just that right feel, that right rhythm to the scene, something that just feels right for him. And, and, the, gives, and the overarching pace, because in this movie particularly, like we're watching the one of the most frantic minutes of the whole movie, where the rhythm is not even dictated by any score at this point. It's just ferocious bullet fire, like hails of gunfire that we're watching. And so the pace and the rhythm is all dictated in the movement, phenomenal movement of camera, you know, great, you know, shots and reactions, you know, whether it's cars getting chewed up. There's some, some of the shots of police cars in this minute we haven't even talked about, but like some of the police cop, cop car like blowing out of windscreens and exploding through doors is just so ferocious. But in this movie, there's so many huge, like significant dramatic conversations that happen between people. So maintaining the pace, knowing that eventually you're going to get to this centerpiece where the pace is going to be like, you know, uh, the the rate that I'm, the phrase I'm using for it is like cardiac arrest, you know, where, where you just, your heart is beating so fast, you're not sure what the hell's going on. And then it can slow down and we dig back into the investigation, dig back into something that's a little bit more disciplined as opposed to this chaos. Like that's a, it's a, must be a, an insane challenge. Um, well, it's, you know, and I actually, I, I this will be one of my, uh, um, ideas that I like, people to understand about editing, which is that, and as, as much as, you know, I love the sequence, it's a great sequence, but editing isn't just about the speed or the action, which I feel sometimes nowadays people think, Oh, something that has the most editing is the best editing. Yes. To me, it's just as important, you know, the quiet moments that we get in this film that you're obviously going to cover in other podcasts, but the moments where you could just linger on something. I noticed there was one thing before and, and it happens right before the first cut to De Niro on the bank when yes. at the beginning of the sequence, he'll, he cuts to two shots of, I believe Ashley Judd and Amy Brenneman. Yes. Yeah. That, and he sits on them in silence and he just does that right before he kicks in with that, music cue and De Niro in the bank. And those to me are very key moments because they happen right before. Yeah. Especially because they just, you know, it's actually sort of a reminder of how much they, uh, they took Dennis Haysbert from the diner and what his girlfriend also, and you kind of get this sense like, this is what they have at home, but yet this is what, what they're they about to do. I think in this minute as well, I think it's a great point. It's like it's not about the speed. In fact, the the parts in even the chase, even in this heist and the chase, is where it slows down. And when Chris gets shot in this minute, things alter. Like it's almost like, I don't know, it's this weird slowing of time effect. I don't know if it's slow motion or I don't know if it's like half a frame slower. Maybe you in your watching has seen it, but that, that second where De Niro watches him, whether they just drag out just by like a fraction of a second to, to tweak your brain or something. When he sees Chris go down, you feel like the air gets sucked out of the whole scene. Cause it feels like it's been, you know, it's like breathing fire. And then when Chris goes down the, and Michael's already gone, but the balance of the entire thing is, you know, the cops have finally tipped the scales and we see, we're seeing in this next moment Neil's reaction and it literally ends with Neil like one foot on the ground running towards Chris who's laying down after being clipped uh, on, on, on his clavicle there on, on just, under his, um, just under his neck. Um, yeah, and it's also like you can also listen to the sound design there because some of it starts to drop out. Yes. And then you'll you'll get to this in the next minute because I did actually watch to that to the next point when um, De Niro actually gets to him and picks him up. Yes. And I'm fairly sure they dropped out a lot of the sound there just to kind of isolate that moment. And even though I can tell as a professional that line 
you are saying is complete ADR. <laughs> yes. Because <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't, you can hear it, like, you can hear it in your ear, like, that doesn't quite sound like he's actually there in the location. But it still works. It still works. I understand why he did it. But it just, I, I like how it just isolates that one little line, that, come on. And he does, and it just isolates all the other sound around him. Yes. Just a moment. And then he picks him up and, you know, it, it's, it's, there's a lot of, there's so much good stuff in this. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's actually another shot that I actually just really love right before that. Um, and you don't see a lot of directors just, once again, directors who have a, a good idea of the space that they're shooting in. Um, De Niro's, De Niro's just providing cover. And then you kind of see, they make sure to make sure you see, they frame the shot to see um, Tom Sizemore running across, pretty much across the street. Across getting, the street. Yeah. And it's so, you know, like, it's it's one of those things like I can tell like he planned it and he also because he's just such man is such a master of the of the wide frame the cinemascope frame and he knows how to use that to tell a story and how to get it and understand what the space is between these characters and he, and you don't you're not getting a lot of that in films today a lot of action scenes are kind of still weirdly being composed like as if they're regular conversations of single you know yeah. just a, sing, a single point of action and you know it's but not even, as, the, even the full the full frame because it's it, it it's subtle because man's two primary shots in or, or sort of like uh compositions for how people are caught in this or actually this sort of three. There's the overarching tracking shot, the great tracking shot that, you know, Val Kilmer gets to sort of drink up in the previous minutes. Vincent gets to track along and run in a couple of those sequences. Even even um, Bob De Niro's Neil, like, does these great, beautiful side, uh, you know, left to right of frame tracking shots. Then there's a sort of um, looking at at them with them sort of in the middle to right of frame firing, and it's the sort of gun, the muzzle flash composition and then there's a really beautiful one that flips it which shows sort of almost like third person shooter in gaming parlance sort of um a slightly tilted um askew than what would be used to in a third person shooter but that sort of over the shoulder bang 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 i'm going to fire towards you and he uses that sort of there's sort of these three primary shots in this thing but there's something then like you just said about the command of that cinemascope framing of it's so crisply composed that people running in the background help you understand where they are. Even it's very individual pieces of perspective when you like, and there's a great moment. Just see, I'm just sort of, I've got the, the minute playing here on, on, on my computer as we're talking. It's like 23 seconds into the minute. It's that, it's that front on muzzle flash shot with De Niro, but he's called through Chris and man makes a decision to keep it focused on De Niro and has, Val Kilmer run through Neil's frame, like from behind him, it just like runs through. And it's just like those little touches of, I am focusing on a character, but there's other shit happening in the frame is so, it's so clever because, you know, you don't, it's like, you know, we see it in war movies a lot because they're, you know, that's where they're throwing the most money at these sort of sequences. But in the, you know, suburban action, they don't really... And even like a movie like John Wick taught a lot of people that, you know, things can, multiple things can be happening in a frame. Like, you know, I think uh, that's a sort of more modern take of a film that stu- lots of stuff's happening in, in, in yeah, the frame. That surprisingly, yeah, the directors for that one actually do actually have a, some understanding of where characters should be relate in relation to each other during an action scene. Yes. <laughs> and you can know, and like that's that shot you bring up of Kilmer, running past De Niro, you just constantly have a sense of, okay, if you're looking at this overhead and you're drawing it like a football field, yes. you know, Homer's running to his... If you're, if, you're the, if you're the coach, if you're the offensive coordinator <laughs> of this team... You know and I that- imagine man just went down there to the location with and just drew up a blueprint and, you know, just drew up a whole game plan and, you know, and he just moved and moved, you know, the little pieces on the board right left and understood where he had to put the camera to convey all of this <laughs> I, I, I must say as well guys you've got to watch this even if you i i, I know that 
I know in this show, sometimes people think it's an already obsessive enough exercise as it is to be going minute by minute. <laughs> and I know we made Steve just spit his drink out, uh, just so you know when I said that. Um, but uh, what I would say is... Which, he even- what editor, which is actually what an editor does. It's like, <laughs> that's little, little things like that. I mean, when you're on the other end, this is all upsetting. So I feel like everyone who's watching it, you know, people are watching some it's fine to be obsessed with it. Good. We do. <laughs> yeah, and, and that and that's and that's that what that's why I think I've got the most affinity for editors, because they don't mind that I'm like agonizing over every single cut. But he even has the reverse shot. So that reverse shot then of De Niro over his shoulder from his back, you see Chris run he runs at you in the frame, and then like a second later you see him running through the frame in the opposite direction. So it's just such a smart thing of like, I understand how much chaos is going on. And I can cut to another part of this action, but then he's very careful to say it's it's like 25 seconds into this scene. You know, I think it's like between seconds 20 and 25, you see the the De Niro called Chris um, or called Val Kilmer. Kilmer comes through his frame from behind him and then runs out forward. So we're watching those guys go to the right of this T in a section as they're running towards it. The next second is like the 25th second. You see a muzzle flash. It's the muzzle flash shot for Tom Sizemore, and he's still on the other side. But then Man is very careful with the editors to do that shot and to watch him get pinned down and then follow him. So we know that he's been asked to come. He gets pinned down. And then he wheels off to the side and then they give that other reflection shot that you talked about, Steve, which is like in the distance behind De Niro, you're seeing you're seeing Tom Sizemore get a few shots at him off off in the and distance. He's also setting up he also makes sure to set up that West Studio would be in play, in a in the right place to get a clear shot yes. at Velcro without actually Knowing he has the shot because he's looking in the wrong, he's not quite looking in the right no, he's, direction. He's not looking in the right direction at the beginning. Yeah, he's still trying to fire off at he's still trying to fire off at De Niro and he can't get it. And then he yeah. spins on a dime and sees this beautiful, <laughs> literally, is a beautiful man, but this beautiful target. He's like, oh, I've got a shot. Like I can actually maybe do something here. And then he takes him down. Great. I mean, this is what I mean. This is what a director does when he's you know, conceiving an action sequence like that. He's just thinking, especially with something like this, he has like specific characters he has to kind of really focus on. And then I think he's, he's staging this in a way by looking through all of their perspectives so that he can reach that, you know, he can reach the conclusion that he's trying to get to, which is, you know, especially like, you know, he sets up West Studi, he sets up West Studi's character throughout that sequence and then gets him to the point where, Oh, then he realizes I have a clear shot, and he takes the shot and gets him. And it's just—he's—it's it, it, just a you know when a director actually gives a shit about teaching, <laughs> which you don't get, you just don't get often. I mean, you know, it's—is it a school of thought? Like this is what I wonder. You're you're a well researched editor and now a TV writer, and you've essayed great filmmakers, and and you know. There's an, the, the the film I mentioned right at the beginning is probably the film that handed the torch over to Heat as the heist movie, or and I think I had a wonderful conversation um, uh, pre, uh, previously with an, uh, an author called Jedediah Ayres who said that like this Heat took over the French Connections torch, you know. But you know, you did an essay on Dog Day Afternoon, and there's like talk about staging, like that movie. The bank is a stage. You know, the the bank is like the backstage area, and the outdoor area of the bank where they're negotiating with police is the is the main stage. You know what I mean? It's like it feels like it could be a, a weird kind of Birdman esque. You know, this is a stage and backstage of what's happening behind the scenes in a bank robbery and what happens outwardly when you're trying to negotiate in public and have this sort of thing. It's like the staging of those things. Is it like a particular? New, is it like a New York? Is it a th- is it coming from a theatrical background with people like Pollock who just get it? Is it just this weird osmosis where some filmmakers like John McTiernan, who's you know arguably the greatest action director ever for his three big action movies, what is it like? Do, have you observed anything or studied anything that just tells you like where these people start to inherently get it? Well, it's it's more we have to look at we have to look at those are directors of a different generation, so they're not influenced. You know, right. all of us, all of us come up being influenced by a different, you know, generation of directors. So they were influenced by directors who, 
you know, who knew things about blocking, you know, and they knew how to set up a shot and knew how to block a shot and knew how to you know, have a shot, tell a story. Yes. And, you know, and man, man did that in television he, in the eighties. He was, you know, Miami vice and, and actually my particular favorite crime story. Um, yes. They, unbelievably they, great. Unbelievably they looked, great. They looked vastly different than most other things on television. But here's the thing, the generation of filmmakers that came after who aren't quite as skilled in this, they were influenced by the not-so-great television around that time, which yes. not looked like Miami Vice or Crime Story, which were just, you know, they were both just operating on a different level, technically. And they, you know, they their stuff felt just, you know... It has that kind of feel of coverage of just things of, of a camera just being placed in the most obvious position, and 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 the thing and the and the funny part about it is that eventually TV evolved into something in, into more sophisticated filmmaking, which you know better directors understood blocking and didn't just do you know single shot, single shot, and cutting back and forth between them and. And and but unfortunately, the direct the film directors, a lot of film directors now were influenced by the not so great television directors. <laughs> it's that yes. weird, the weird cycle of influence. Michael, man, you said and you said who, who's he been influenced by? And the immediate, like I, I kind of knew a couple of the the um, his favorite filmmakers, but he he wrote a top ten, his top ten movies, um, and it's in alphabetical order, which. Um, um, is interesting. He's got some commentary on it, but I'll just go to some of them. Passion of Joan of Arc from Carl Theodore Dreyer, which is basically a, a, a symphony of faces, you know, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, Dr. Strangelove is one of his top films. Um, uh, My Darling Clementine, John Ford's OK Corral wider movie. Talk about a guy who understood blocking and things happening in a frame like there's no one better than um, than John Ford. I'm not surprised he's influenced by Florida. So and and I, Battleship Potemkin, Sergei Eisenstein, like the 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 true left to right, you know, the, yes. the montage, the OG action montage um, influenced Michael Mann. Like that's like it completely makes sense. And of course, The Wild Bunch by Peck and Parr. Like, of course. <laughs> I mean, he's uh, I, yeah. I mean, and that's one of. I would say that's obviously one of the the ending of the world bunch is maybe probably in my top ten of just best shootout sequences in film. I actually think Heat is my favorite because it's the one I keep going back to. Yes, and and it's actually it, this actually was perfect timing for me to to do this because I was actually about to write a sequence in the near future that is very much trying to be you know a great Action great shoot yeah so far and i kind of wanted to you know watching the scene again was just kind of a good just kind of warm up for that and, and actually going down to the location and just looking you know just looking at a physical space and just trying to put yourself in the director's head it's like wondering how do i put this scene together and how do i you know i'm sure there was they did like you know they he scouted that location and, you know, I know they, sh- I guess they shot it over several weekends from what I remember. Yeah, which was, that's that's one thing. That's one thing I forgot to ask you is because I just listened to another phenomenal podcast from the ringer podcast network. They do a show called the rewatchables. They have done heat as like their first trial episode ever. So I would recommend if you're a fan of one heat minute, go back and listen to that. Um, it's not nearly as extensive as 170 episodes of what we're talking about, but it is definitely a good show with people who love this movie. Um, but they talked about the Godfather and famously that, that scene, um, kind of a bit of what they called like just sort of half-assed internet research but the scene where Sonny fights um carlo like he beats up on carlo in the first godfather film they said that they shot that over like weeks not four weekends where you had to shut down los angeles but they like took weeks to shoot that scene over and over and over again to get the right rhythm and i just when i think about heat and someone's like yeah they shot it over four weekends i'm like four weekends it should have taken four months. Like, how did they get all of this choreography and perfection in just weeks? Which tells me, which infers everything that we've already assumed, which is it's so incredibly well thought out 
and so incredibly well playbooked and blueprinted to their nth degree that they could come in and execute. And then everyone, obviously, the, the phenomenal actors who were here are all prepared to like come in and shoot it over a few weekends. And understandably, they can only block off the street on a weekend for a certain amount of hours in the day. Yeah. So that re- I mean, that, that restricts them too. I mean, during that time, especially like Michael Mann, the, the Michael Mann in the 90s, I think was maybe one of the most just precise and like everything was just planned to it to the you know to the smallest detail the mohicans he and the insider just have that feeling to it i think when he moved into this century he started becoming a little bit more had a more improvisatory style improvisation style to his um movies and he kind of senses he's not planning as much and I kind of I'm, – I'm, I'm actually, you know, there's some good things about these movies. I'm not dismissing all of them. But I kind of miss the Michael Mann, Dante Spinotti team. Yes. Film and, and shooting your oh. film and just having those, you know, just building all these great sequences that they just – you just feel like everything in this movie is just so thought at. I mean, he did also try to make this movie as a TV movie be- years before. Which you get a second, a second chances, right? You get a, you get a second, uh, second chance. A second chance, and then you got Robert De Niro and Al Pacino to play the t- yeah. It's in your movie. Look, if, if, you, if you realize that, if you realize that the premise works and the gravitas of the dialogue is not working, then maybe it is the performer. Like, like we haven't even, no, we haven't actually talked about that, but it's like. You know, I think Shakespearean productions have gotten that since like the dawn of time. You know what I mean? Like for like t- hundreds of years, people have been performing Shakespeare, and then sometimes you get around to a performer of it that gets it. And you know, f- famously right now, the probably the best per- person working is like McKellen. Like Ian McKellen is like the Shakespeare guy, and he's like King Lear is famous and infamous around the world, and he's like the guy who's doing it the best at the moment. And you know, before him. Um, so Lawrence Olivier, you know, there's certain actors who like get it and they just come in and can deliver it. And it's just, you can't imagine that anyone else could ever come in and do it ever again. Um, and so, yeah, there's those strange ones where, and even like Brando in Streetcar, like that's a play that's been happening for however many years. And then Brando comes in and does it. And every single person after that is wanting to do Brando and Streetcar. Like there's just, there's life altering portrayals that if someone else is doing it before him, they just didn't do it like him. There's just something about it. It's like you just didn't do it like him. And how he did it was how the universe intended it for it to be delivered. Well, I've also remind, I think um, I do. I, I think it was a long time ago. I remember reading this, and it kind of makes sense with this actor. Is that I think Nicolas Cage was a big fan of Al Pacino's performance in this movie, oh, and yeah. I think hundred percent hundred percent love nicholas cage i love nicholas uh, you know we haven't talked thank you for bringing nicholas cage into the one heat minute lexicon because we haven't even talked about it ever but i, I well we I, talked about the fact that al pacino's character is supposedly on cocaine but they cut off they cut that <laughs> out yeah no that's been talked about we've, we've covered that but you, you know what like the thing about nick a thing about a nicholas cage is that like he'll go for it like there's not many actors that like legit in every movie properly go for something like to challenge, to really bring something original to the way that they're portraying. Like just give me something that's original because so many things are bland. Like if you watch the worst offense that you can say of LA takedown, other than it feels like heat light, you know, in, in, in almost every way is that the choices the dramatic choices and the performance choices are nowhere near as daring as they are in Heat. Like in Heat, everything's slightly dialed up or askew or more intense, more inward. And so yeah. like the thing you love about a Nick Cage anything is you just know he's going for it. Even in like Into the Spider-Verse, he's going for it. Mandy, sure. he's absolutely going for it. But like he's the guy like who still goes for it out there. I think that's what he saw. Because Pacino, Pacino's performance in this movie is 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 great and just kind of odd to sit back and watch (laughs) acting and he feels like he's acting in his own movie and probably because it fits fits with the character who's just inside of his own head all the time. It doesn't 
Yeah. He's not concerned with what anybody else thinks about him, and his whole, he kind of even pushes his own family away. And he's just acting in such this weird way, and just it's just such odd acting choices that I can't. I, I'm not sure if they're the right choices, but they're constantly interesting, and I'm always. I'm always going to remember almost every single one of these moments that Pacino does in that movie, which are just, just and I've done imitations of this too. <laughs> you can share that with us, Steve. You can share that with us. This show loves an impression. <laughs> Give me what you got. Give me what you got. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen. I'll refrain from his comment about Ashley Judd's certain Oh, look, price. there's been many. There's even been... The great Alicia Malone, an Australian female film critic, came on for that great ass episode. And I think her Pacino saying, I, I got a, she's got a great ass, is probably my one of my highlights of the entire shit series. So thank you for bringing that back up. And a shout out to Alicia, too. Look, see, thank you so much for being a part of One Heat Minute. It's been an absolute pleasure talking through this scene with you. Um, and um, uh, for, for everyone, as, as all of you guys know, the best place to sort of find out our awesome cachet of folk who've been on one heat minute is twitter so it's at steven s-t-e-v-e-n santos s-a-n-t-o-s on on the twitter sphere you can click through then he's got his vimeo link um, which i would strongly recommend dog day is homework for this and uh, immediately after we record that episode that's going to go up on the uh, on my twitter to remind people that steven is coming onto the show mate thank you so much for being a part of it it's been a pleasure it's great to have an editor um on the show again talking through the sequence a second editor in a row um after vashing it and another person who's gotten to walk those streets in this scene and um and uh, i appreciate all your time here so thank you so much thank you for having me on the show blake great guys as always this has been one heat minute i'm blake howard blake is batman on twitter but really oneheatminute.com is the only place you need to go mail at one heat minute if you want to email us to get in touch um that is the best way and look we're heading out of this ice we're moving through finally the cops have tipped over that advantage and when Rob, Robert De Niro, before I let you go, remember, when Robert De Niro's Neil McCauley says, go, you go. You don't break off and walk away. You go. Because, God damn it, Michael Torito, you just made Val Kilmer get shot. Guys, we'll catch you on another episode of One Hit Minute just around the corner. <laughs>